Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. My guest today is writer, psychologist, and mythologist, Dr. Sharon Blackie. As someone who treasures wisdom whispered and sometimes shouted by the divine feminine through nature, art, and often forgotten mythic tales of centuries past, I was so excited when Sharon accepted my invitation to be on my show. For storytellers of all mediums out there, you're in for a real treat, as Sharon so beautifully recast our widely accepted 20th century model known as the hero's journey into a more expansive and all-gender empowering paradigm that charts endless trajectories unto new horizons for all of us to adventure beyond. And with that, I'm proud to introduce a truly angelic gift to the world, Dr. Sharon Blackie. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you. I've really been looking forward to this discussion as I'm really taken with your writing and everything you've invested in over the years. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Perhaps I just would love for you to cast a, a picture, paint a picture for just where you're set right now, um, where, you, where you live. Yeah. Yeah, I live in the um, in Mid Wales, which is right on the west of uh, the westernmost country of the of Great Britain, and um, it's very. I, I live about a thousand feet up in the mountains, what are called the Cambrian Mountains, green fields. We live on a little small holding, eight acres, sheep, pins, so far, uh, and we moved in literally a day before the lockdown descended on us in the UK. So it was um, it was an interesting experience, but it's very beautiful. An, an old house that started its life as a chapel. And um, oh, yeah, here we are. Beautiful. So yeah, new place, new place, new ideas. I love that. And do you care for the sheep? Um, yes, my husband does most of it. Yeah, okay. but, um, uh, but the, we're, we're, I, I'm a little bit of a little Bo Peep uh, in uh, my spare time. <laughs> so, they're little pedigree nice. sheep, they're little black horned sheep, which are kind of native to... Um, uh, to the British Isles, so they're they're very beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, so um, you are a writer, psychologist, mythologist, and but you have found this deep interest in the mythic feminine. Can you just kind of expound on what what drew you to the mythic feminine, and what keeps you coming back every single morning to just delve deeper into that? I think it started when I was having. Um, a bit of a midlife crisis, probably my, actually it was my third midlife crisis, if I recall correctly, because I had a whole sequence of them. Um, you know, why, why stop at one? Um, and I was really um, kind of in my late thirties thinking about what it was to be a woman in this culture, what a woman's stories were, why it was that the stories that I was told as a child coming from a, a Christian culture were stories of women, you know, being the source of all evil, um, having, uh, you know, being required to be quiet, um, having no particular agency. And then I started to, look, to, to wonder, because I'd always worked with myth and always worked with story, I started to wonder what our own native stories told us about women. And I really delved into it in a very deep way, rather than just looking at the kind of, you know, top level folk tales, and discovered that our native mythology here in the British Isles and Ireland has many, many wonderful stories about very powerful women 
um, about women who represent the moral authority of the other world, about women who are the land embodied and personified. And yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, I liked that. Um, I like that idea of women having some agency in a way that's different from men. And I should say, you know, in the native mythology that I'm talking about, it's not just women who have the power. Men have a different kind of power. But I like the fact that we had something specific that was that was intrinsic to us. And so that's really where it came from. And I'm constantly excited by that and what it tells us about women's lives. And particularly as I grow older, you know, what the stories tell us about women growing older as well, that it's not all just young women or women in their so-called prime that, that these stories relate to. I see a common thread in so many mythological tales of this wise crone, you know, kind of waiting in the shadows, you know, under a tree, you know, waiting to deliver these elixirs uh, of healing and pointing a finger towards this is the right direction, go this direction, this is where you should go, but not quite telling them everything, you know, is that predominantly what you've, you've have found within Celtic myth and these kind of goddess figures, or I know you said it's kind of spanned across generations, but I, in my mind, I see that 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 crone is kind of the epitome of wisdom, the kind of the all-knowing one. Yeah, I mean, we have we have women of all um, of all ages or of all manifestations in the stories, from young through to middle-aged menopausal. But my favorite character in the entire world is in the Gaelic stroke Gaelic tradition of of Ireland and Scotland, and she is an old woman called the Calliach which literally in the Irish language means old woman. And she is the old woman of the world. And she is um, a very fierce old woman who is known for shaping and creating the land. We don't have, um, we don't have a story of how the universe was created in Celtic mythology, but we have this wonderful character who, who made and shaped the land. And the land is everything, so hey, you know, that works for us. And um, she's a little bit fierce. Yeah, she protects the land and the wild things that inhabit it from humans. So she is the one who, as, a, as, a, as an old woman, stands against the hunter who wants to take too many deer uh, or stands against the burning of the forest. And um, I love that. I love the fact that in our native mythology, this very, very old, and she is old, you know, she, she's one of the older goddesses, clearly, in this part of the world. We can, we can trace that back. I love the fact that she is there, that she is the one who holds the line and says no. And in a world, you know, where we have so much damage going on to the environment, where there is such an imbalance between humans and the, and the environment, here is, here is a mythical character that stands firm to hold that balance. So, mm. yeah, um, I've always loved the old woman um, ever since I was a child in every fairy tale, you know, whether it was a wicked old witch or whether it was a Baba Yaga kind of figure in the Russian fairy tales. So I always kind of aspired, even as a very young child, to be that. But I'm kind of curious what draws you to it as, as a man. What, what does that figure say to you? I love spending time in silence and, and nature. And over the last few years, it's really gripped me at a, at a deeper level how feminine nature is you know like you know we hear the term mother earth you know and we just kind of accept that as kind of a terminology but like there is a true deep ministry of the soul from a, a feminine wisdom for me that i take in just being in nature you know just listening to the silence of 
you know, the grass blowing in the wind or, you know, the trees and the birds. And so trees, I'm so drawn to trees. And it's so hard for me to imagine a, a tree being personified as, as male, you know? Um, and so I think what it is, it's like there's this gentility uh, and this quiet and this silence within nature but also you re- you you mentioned this this great word fierceness you know this protection mm-hmm. and um it's this the mother hen who's uh protecting her young you know and so i i think it kind of that even folds into something we addressed a little bit about the idea of disney princesses have been cast in this mold of using almost joseph campbell's model for a strong valiant hero right and and so these stories, you look at them and it's almost like you find them trying to shoehorn these ideas of heroism for these princesses that they, they don't seem true to that fierceness kind of balanced with that wisdom, that care, that compassion. Um, and so what are your thoughts on even, I don't know if it's an identity crisis or if it's, uh, this heroism has almost lost its way and I'm got this new sense of excitement that, oh, wait a second, we may be coming back to what true, you know, feminine heroism truly is. And maybe it's going to point the way towards even recasting what the hero's journey is for all of us, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot in there. So I'm going to try and unpack it. And if I lose my thread, (laughs) bring me back. Um, I would say that, yes, um, the feminine in our mythology is very much associated with the land and it can be very nice and it can be very balanced and it can be very harmonious. But what I love more than anything about Celtic mythology is that um, the the women are fierce. If, If you do bad stuff, there are consequences and they deliver the consequences, you know, so, um, if you offend the other world, um, which often appears in the form of an otherworldly woman, then your land may turn into a wasteland. Your city may be flooded. Um, if you break the contract between people and the land, if you don't honor it, if you don't respect it, not in a kind of like, you know, um, a completely random way, but for specific trespasses against the human relationship with the natural world, then they are not afraid to impose consequences. And I think that's very important. And that's why I so dislike the Disneyfication um, of these characters because, or of any character in folk tales, because it's not true to reality. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, f- the feminine in, in fairy tales in Europe, you know, they're very insipid and, and it's mostly heroic folk tales. That's absolute nonsense. Our folklore in this part of the world is full of really feisty females who are constantly saving the men, you know, and I don't know where this has come from, except maybe Disney that has specifically selected the stories that fit their patriarchal, you know, concept of the world. Um, but this idea that we take this, we take those qualities away from women and we make them all too nice. We make them all love and light is, is really not what the world is about. We have to have the shadow as well as the light. We have to have, balance we have to have both possibilities so that is really important to me and um in in looking at the folklore and being true to it that we we accept those really important feisty fierce wrathful often qualities of and yeah the disnification has, has taken it away and the other thing you're absolutely right which the disnification has done is it has 
what what we're seeing now in the later Disney movies, it seems to me, um, and I think Frozen is the last movie that I saw that seemed to me to represent that, is it's almost as if Disney recognises that these little insipid princesses are not quite, you know, for the times and that they need to bring them up to date. But rather than kind of like looking back at these very feminine qualities of fierceness and wrathfulness, they do, as you suggested, just make them into heroes. Um, so what we have is we have these princesses acting just like the heroes in the folktales, as if there's no sex difference at all, you know, as if there's no difference in behavior, as if there's no other possible way to be. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a problem. That's a problem to me. In the hero's journey, um, you know, I am a great admirer of Joseph Campbell. Um, he did a lot of very, very wonderful things for mythology. Um, but he was a man of his time and he wrote his book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which first put forward this concept of the, the hero's journey. He wrote that book in about 1949. Or it was published in about 1949. And, you know, the world was very patriarchal. America was very patriarchal. And so he had this idea of an active, swashbuckling, individualistic hero, which kind of was the American dream. And he went looking for it in other cultures. And because he specifically went looking for it, of course, he was going to find it. And a lot of the stuff that didn't fit into um, his model just didn't get talked about very much. Didn't get talked about. Yeah. And I think that that's uh, another huge reason I was so drawn to your work and everything you've invested your life into, because you can look at as a filmmaker, Joseph Campbell inspired big name filmmakers of the 20th century, especially starting in the 60s, 70s, you know, Spielberg and Lucas and all of them and David Mamet, they all just claim how Campbell has really helped them and inspired them as storytellers. And me too. I can't, you know, I have to admit, yes, Joseph Campbell inspired me so much. But what really drew me to you, Sharon, is this whole idea of the post-hero's journey that the linear, limited kind of story arc that Campbell cast for the hero's journey really is this mold of the white, strong, valiant, as you say, swashbuckling hero who goes through call to adventure, rites of passage, big loss, big overcoming, slaying the dragon and returning with an elixir for the world that sounds so and then what you know to me like what else yeah. so can you uh, give me a sense of what what is the post hero's journey and mm -hmm. why is that welcoming us into the so much more yeah, I mean, there are, two, there are two things really, just briefly to say that, um, you know, uh, J Campbell's heroes were always male. And there is a there is a famous book called Heroine's Journey by a woman called Maureen Murdoch, who was a, Campbell, uh, a student of Campbell. And she reports in the introduction to that book that she said to Campbell, well, you know, what about the woman? Doesn't she get to make the journey? And Campbell reportedly said to her, uh, no, women are the place that the hero wants to get to. Well, I'm sorry, you know, I mean, that just, that was very 1949, okay? But it doesn't work for very many women. And so this idea that, that women really don't do the journey is just silly. Sorry, it, it's just silly. It's bad psychology apart from anything else, as well as very bad mythology because the world is full of women going on journeys. Our European fairy tales are full of feisty heroines going on journeys, riding on the back of bears, riding on the back of pigs, whatever, you know, to, to save the male. So that was just silly. 
So the, the whole idea, but what Maureen Murdoch was trying to say, and I've written about this too in my book of Women Rose Rooted in the context of what I call the eco-heroine's journey, is that women's life patterns, and I know this isn't, you know, we're being very general here rather than getting into the whole gender, the whole gender area, which makes it very, very complicated. So forgive me for simplifying. What we value often is very different. And so to me as a woman, I don't want to slay the dragon. I mean, Campbell was all for slaying dragons. That's washbuckling stuff again. I want to see what qualities that dragon has that make the dragon special that I can kind of incorporate into my team, that I can value in the world. Um, that I can say, okay, how can we work with a dragon? Dragon looks big, looks fierce, looks very dangerous, but there must be something, you know, that we can find in common with a dragon. And that isn't part of the hero's journey, and that bugs me. One of the key stories that Campbell wrote a lot about, and um, most of what he wrote, I um, I, I don't. I was going to say hesitate to say this. I don't really hesitate to say it at all. He wrote a lot about the, the stories of the Holy Grail. Um, which is fundamental to Celtic mythology, you know, but one of the kind of like, I don't know, key cornerstone stories of Celtic mythology. And he very much framed that as a hero's journey. So, you know, the knights in King Arthur's court go off, they're all a little bit bored and they hear of this thing called the Holy Grail. And so they go looking for it and that would be a great quest. And um, he, he, he put that forward very much as a hero's kind of journey. Um, but the interesting thing about the Grail stories, if you look back at them, and I am a Celtic studies scholar, so I have gone back all the way back, all the way back to the originals, is that what the knights, the knights go on the quest, they come to this wonderful castle, or Percival is normally the knight, he comes to this wonderful castle, um, in the castle is a king who is wounded in the genitals. And as a consequence of the king's wound, the land has become a wasteland because in Celtic mythology, the health of the king is very much tied to the health of the kingdom. So Percival, you know, looks at the king, doesn't ask what's wrong and say anything. Um, he sees a whole amazing procession where women uh, at dinner, you know, a bunch of women suddenly, otherworldly women, women suddenly appear carrying grails and the people carrying lances. He doesn't say a word nothing at all the next morning he wakes up in the castle and it's vanished and so he has to go on a whole quest to find that grail castle again and to see that grail again but when he actually gets there and he he is faced with it again and he attains the grail he doesn't attain the grail by cutting the head off anything he doesn't attain it by um, beating other knights in in combat or engaging any battles he attains the grail by asking the question what ails me so mm -hmm. there is that compassion he gains the grail by asking the compassionate question what we call the question that must be asked it doesn't matter what the answer is okay it's not about the answer it's about the question and that is Percival's journey throughout the grail quest and he is you know he's harangued all the time by otherworldly women old hags popping out of the woods that tell him what a bad job he's doing because he's so full of himself and self-important and and that's his journey that's his hero's journey is that journey to compassion to actually looking at what is around him and saying what's going on here and that to me you know I've called it the post-heroic journey but really it isn't it's kind of like a pre-heroic journey you know 
this was our this these were our myths before Campbell came along and classified them as a hero's journey, and they weren't about swashbuckling and individualism at all. They were very much about asking the compassionate question. We have folk tales full of stories which teach us not to take too much of anything because of bad consequences. And so, to me, the post-heroic journey challenges that cultural mythology which we don't even see as mythology, we see it as the way the world is, which tells us that each one of us has to be better than another person, preferably every people, uh, every, every person. Um, it tells us that we must have more, 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 the myth of more, you know, the myth of continuing progress, a great thing in cultural mythology in the West. Every generation has to have more than the generation before. We have to have more money. We have to have more stuff. We have to have better jobs at what cost to the planet, you know? And so these mythologies that our culture tells us we have to live by really to me, the post heroic journey challenges every one of them and says, no, what, what is it in this world that we're facing today um, to, to be a kind of hero in, in, in big quotes um, that's really powerful. Yeah, because if if you we stick with this idea of the hero's journey, it can almost err towards the side of being tribal, dualistic, like us versus them. The slaying of the dragon can so easily and literally be seen as the enemy versus like the recasting of what is that dragon begging to teach us about our own personal transformation that to me that, that that to me just is such a more inclusive way to tell a story about all of us instead of just some of us that think and look and believe like some of us do it's 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 almost like an eastern versus western kind of lens i mean kind of but you know we we are the west and our stories our old stories are are the ones that you're calling Eastern. <laughs> you know, this has been my point for many, many years that we don't need to look to the East for the kind of stories that tell us about living in balance and harmony. You know, we've, we've got them here in ancient European culture. It's just that they're not, they're not taught in the same way. They're not given to us in the same way. So when I was a kid, these were just fairy tales. They were literally stories for kids. They were, they were um, entertainment. And, you know, that's silly. They, these were cosmologies. These were worldviews. This was spirituality. The whole grail mythology is a spiritual journey, a spiritual problem. You know, we haven't been allowed to use those words for, for many, many decades, but that's what it is. But here, in this part of the world, it's never presented in that way. It's presented as stories for entertainment. And just that shift of perspective to say, no, this is actually what our ancestors believed, that sense of lineage, that sense of these beautiful old stories belonging to us that we thought these things, these values were important once. You know, the last few hundred years are a bit of an aberration in human history when we haven't lived by those values. So, okay, let's let's go back. Oh. Let's look back again and see what we can reclaim from, from those stories. I love that. Um, perhaps you can quickly give me some more background on something you've said about linear versus spiral trajectory and story and myth that really gripped me as something important for us to just even recontextualize how we see our journeys as as people you know 
Yeah, I mean, I think, again, you know, all, all tied up with the, the hero's journey is this idea that it is a linear process and it's a bit of a one-off. And so you go on this journey, you come back, you're there now, you've arrived, you can retire, you know, that wonderful idea that we have that we, we do this stuff and then we retire. Um, and our ancestors in this part of the world, I'm talking about Britain, Ireland, the, the kind of Celtic countries, didn't really much do linear. And so the big symbol for us, which we see time and time again cropping up in Celtic art and on our monuments pretty much everywhere, is the spiral. And so they believed that everything comes around again. It's not a circle, though, because that, that implies that you start, you end up back where you started. You don't because you've picked a lot of stuff up along the way, you know, through years. And so you're spiraling out, you're spiraling out. Sometimes also you spiral back in again to the center and then you have to spiral back out again. So there's never just one journey um, in this old idea. It's something that we are doing constantly throughout our lives, that we have a whole series of journeys, um, a whole series of calls to adventure, a whole series of things to learn, a whole series of initiations of things to integrate and bring back to our world. Um, but we never, ever think we're done. You know, we never think we've finished, that we've learned everything, that we are the great heroes who fixed it. It's always an ongoing process of discovery. And that whole sense of linearity is a very peculiar one because the, the, the spiral tells you that the world is always in the process of becoming. You know, it never ends. We're in a process of becoming up until the point where we die. And so is the world. And so this, this idea of the linearity would be that there was a beginning and at some point there was an end. In this, in this vision, there is no end to the story wow. it just keeps coming around again it's really beautiful yeah i mean i i think that even hearing that switch flip a little bit in my mind as a storyteller and hopefully to other storytellers novelists screenplay writers poets playwrights whatever but like for us to break out of that limited idea of beginning middle and end which is important but then the kind of exponential room for that becoming that spiral becoming and how we can point our characters in that spiral trajectory rather than desire to climb the mountain and then raise your hands in victory you know what i mean that sounds boring to me the latter does yeah it's i find it very boring and i think also there too I, because i think it's not way well, i i think Maybe this is a, more of a kind of like heroine's journey perspective. I don't know. But I think it's actually a function of the age as well. I think what that approach lacks is depth of character, you oh, know. Yeah, but rather uh, than rewriting the narrative, rather than messing with the storyline, it was just a question of who are these characters now in a very, very different world. And mm. I think that something about the hero's journey puts all of, if this makes sense, it, I, I don't know whether I'm making too subtle a point here, it puts all of the emphasis on just plot and mm. none of the emphasis on, on the meaning of this character, this archetype, what it says to us, what it speaks to us in this time. So mm. I see, you know, the stories of the future. I don't know how it translates into film because that's not really my genre, but the, the, the stories of the future being very much more contemplative and thinking about what it you know what these characters really represent 
and mm. doing away with these overly simplistic dualisms of the villain and the hero. And uh. there never was that in any of our mythology. You know, it was all ambiguous. We didn't have good goddesses and good otherworldly women. They all had a really mean side if you messed with them. And that was necessary to keep everything in balance. So I think character is a big part of the archetypes are a big part of um, seeing how those stories might progress in the future to me and how they might inform our perspective on, on the world and on narrative. So good. One thing that you said was um, that really I was taken with that patriarchy has traumatized men as much as it has women. Can you kind of expound on that? Because that, that was that really, really stopped. I, I, it stopped me in my tracks when, when I heard you say that. Because I don't think many of us are natural heroes, you know, whether we're, women certainly are not. But I don't think actually very many men are. Uh, some men, you know, would very much embrace that kind of active, outgoing, swashbuckling kind of character. But a lot of men are not that person. And no. it doesn't allow it doesn't it doesn't allow them a role. If that is your if that is all you really admire and all you really value in a culture and everything that you hold up in your stories and your movies and your books and your novels, where does that leave like 99 percent? Maybe that's too high I don't know, of men. Now, where are their role models? There are so many very beautiful archetypal male characters that are not warriors, you know, that are not heroes, that are not swashbuckling. So we have the character, just two to mention, the character of the king. They had this beautiful concept in Irish mythology particularly, which was about the king's truth. And a true ruler... And, and the concept of truth isn't just like seeing the difference between truth and, and, and lies. It was deeper than that. It was the ability to discern. It was integrity. It was right judgment. It was honor. Do you know? It was the ability to, to see a situation, get right to the heart of it, discern the problem and understand what was needed to put it right. And that was so necessary as well as the female stuff and then you know in the nature and, and the land and and there's a beauty in that and and some of the masculine archetypes that are in our mythology i really think are very very fascinating and it's not the ones that joseph campbell would have loved the sodding swashbuckling knight you know that's really tedious but the smith look at the smith the smith is a fascinating character you have um, they're often lame you know, in, in all European mythology, I'm not talking just about Celtic, they're often lame, they have a physical flaw, but they preside over this beautiful, fiery, powerful, um, alchemical process of turning stuff into metal, beautiful things, useful weapons and what have you. Not enough has been written on the smith. That's a really interesting... Lots of that has been written on the warrior. You know, we have the classic... Um, uh, who was it, Robert Johnson thing, warrior, king, lover, whatever else it was. What about a smith? That's mm. a real creative masculinity, you know? So I think there are, there's a lot of beauty there that I wish men would delve into a little bit more and, again, go back to the old stories and just say, actually, we can find ourselves in them because they were never really hero stories after all. They were about embodying masculine qualities of discernment of of strength you know we need the warrior for heaven's sake we do yeah. need a warrior yeah we need people to stand up 
And sometimes that's masculine strength where feminine strength is in different areas. There's nothing wrong with that. We, so it's not, it's partly about circling back to some of these old stories and just looking at them again and thinking, I think actually there might be an awful lot of wisdom there and having the confidence to go back and look at that and take some, some, um, inspiration from it in the ways that I have taken inspiration from the stories of the divine feminine in, in mm-hmm. the culture. They're both, both incredibly rich. Incredibly rich. Yeah. Something that I've talked about in some of my other podcasts is kind of like the limitation of either or thinking versus both and thinking is both and kind of a theme that you find in myth as you study it and how can that inform us to kind of rethink even how story can be structured as storytellers does that make sense yeah yeah it's kind of complicated you know because myth when myths and stories are written down they're written down in context and and up until now they've been written down in a patriarchal context where people have been stressing the heroic because that's our cultural mythology. You know, our, myth, our cultural mythology is the heroic, the individualistic, the wanting to be the best, wanting to overcome, wanting to be better than everyone else. That's our cultural mythology. And so when it's written down and when it's told, that's the overlay that has been superimposed upon these old stories up until now. So, to, and, and that does, that whole individualist cultural mythology along with the other cultural myth, uh, which is of progress and having to have more, more, more. Mm. All of these are cultural overlays, which, you know, which change the way we see the old stories and which are polarizing, aren't they? All of them. Yes. You know, they are. They do, uh, particularly the heroic. In America, you know, for, for, for better sometimes, sometimes for better, you have to give it that. But mostly at the moment for worse is, is the greatest proponent of that heroic cultural mythology and if somebody is a hero a whole bunch of people are not and that's not to say that everybody can be everything they can't you know we all have our own particular skills but that whole idea that somebody has to be the best why why can't you just be best at what you do in this particular area and you know or, or good at what you do rather in this particular area and so i think that that polarization has been such a function of western culture and the whole, if we go back to the ancient Greeks, for example, sorry, just for a minute, just bear with me. Oh, it's interesting. I'm so, ready. Uh, there was this whole concept from Plato onwards that every, and it was a spiritual perspective that he had in his philosophy. So let's just get over that and say, that's okay. Um, he believed that every soul came to a particular place at a particular time in the world um, born in a particular setting, chose to do this with a particular gift to display mm. to the world. It didn't matter whether it was a big thing or a little thing. It could be tending a beautiful garden or it could be saving a country. It didn't matter. That It was an expression of the unique beauty of this soul that we came here to express. And that is that is normally these days talked about under the concept of calling. And the mm. whole idea of calling in this ancient Greek concept is you come here to express that gift, you know, and again, it may be creating a beautiful garden. It may be keeping a little forest patch alive when everything around it is dying. It may be being Greta Thunberg and trying to save, you know, the, and the environment at a very young, it doesn't matter, but that whole sense of coming here to express who you are kind of without attachment to outcome, without having to be grand and glorious is again, part of our history that's what 
it was all about back in the day. Everybody didn't have to be heroes. There were heroes to be heroes. You know, there were priestesses to be priestesses. There were old women in the woods to be old women in the woods and to be the one that you found when everything else had failed you. And there was a real recognition of different paths and the necessity of different paths, whereas we have just turned into this one trajectory. You have to be there, you have to overcome, and nothing else is of any interest. And that's so sad because the other archetypes are very much more interesting. Like you, I love the old woman. You know, I love the old woman as a, as a child when I had no idea, really. You know, it's like, why didn't I love the golden-haired princesses? I didn't. I, I wanted to be that old woman. I still do. Ooh, yeah. I wanted to be that character who was kind of like, you know, true to herself, who was whole, who knew some stuff but wasn't out there advertising it. You found mm-hmm. her if you were lucky. You know, uh-huh. she did her thing. She communed with the land. She talked to the crows. She knew her stuff, but she didn't feel a need to push herself forward, to swashbuckle, to overcome, to kill anybody. She was just there. She was just, she was just the old woman of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So much more depth and uh, maturity in that, you know? So many more stories to tell than the ones we've been telling. I think that's what it comes down to because we've been telling the hero's journey, haven't we? Or the heroine's yeah. journey, kind of like, you know, kind of roughly disguised as a hero's journey actually but what about the stories of the old women what about the stories of the smiths what about the stories of all these other archetypes which are just so deep and rich and fascinating when you go into them yeah I i think that's just what i am so excited about this new generation of filmmakers and even storytellers novelists poets because i kind of feel like the our old model for what a story is is kind of being dismantled and reconstructed to the so much more, if that makes sense. You know, there is so much more to extract from what a story is if you Mm -hmm. kind of have the courage to step outside of the linear hero's journey that we've gotten so used to over over the years, you know? I mean, that's exciting to me. It's, it's, it's exciting to me as well, because, you know, so I was doing an interview with somebody else, um, a week or two ago, and he had read my most recent book, which is a collection of um, uh, reimaginings of some old myths and fairy tales called Foxfire, Wolfskin, and Other Stories of Shape-Shifting Women. And he said to me, it's a really strange book because, you know, that it, it's not that you're like retelling the stories or you're telling the stories differently. It's like, it's like you're looking at the characters and I'm, yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, so I wanted to reimagine them, but I wanted to reimagine them as as uh, the archetypes that were never delved into. So I'm trying to. So the, one of the examples, um, one of the stories that I reimagined was Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, which I have loved ever since I was a child. I don't know why there was something very magical mm. about that. The Snow Queen was taken over by Disney um, as an evil character, you know, and and you see it in so many iterations in ballet, in film, in in novels, in um, the snow queen is the bad woman you know she's the one who steals a little boy away and she's winter and winter is bad and just like if even if you look back at hans christian anderson's story she was never that she was ambiguous mm. you know and he talks about the necessary winter so i was thinking to myself well <clears throat> what if what would we do with these archetypes now if these archetypes appeared in today's world what would they be what would they have to teach us what would they have to say and i thought to myself when well, in a world of global warming wouldn't the Snow Queen maybe be something of a hero? Mm, you know, how could you? Wow. Um, 
not in hero's journey way but just in the sense of yeah. wouldn't you actually need the snow queen and and what would she have to say about our global warming when and i have this scene of of the snow queen weeping over the last dead polar bear wow. you know because the polar bear is her world and just kind of switching it and sometimes that that's what i love about the best movies and about the best novels is that um that invert not inversion i can't think of the right word subversion i guess mm -hmm. of the original story so that you look at it from a different perspective and and everything is illuminated in a way that it never was before that's the power of story that's the power to me of movie of a good movie of a good book you know to just look at it from a different perspective or to take a character and put it in a different environment and just say we we, we need to get over that linear this and then this and then that's the end and just say yeah. life's different now yeah right that sounds really boring if we want to just stick within that small-minded storyline you know that sounds mm. really boring to me <laughs> what do you think myth is begging to teach us and tell us that we have just lost over the centuries oh wow i think um i think that sense that we are part of the earth story we're part of the land story or what i yeah. often call the land's dreaming you know mm. um that it's not that, that we are not always the heroes of the story we're not always the, the protagonists of the story rather um that actually the land has its own story thank you very much and we're just a little bit part of it just as the crow is a, a, a part of it um i think it to me what most myth when you go back to original myths is trying to tell us is that it's, and it, it sounds very cliched when you try and put it into words, but there really is a web and we're just one node of it. Mm. Uh, that, that it's not all about us. In fact, often it really is about anything other than us. Ah. You know? <laughs> um, that, right. that there's the wisdom of a crow that we need, that there's a wisdom that a, that a rock might have the most beautiful story to tell you if you can only sit there and shut up for long mm. enough to listen to it. And I think that myth is always trying to do that, to weave us into a web the sight of which we really have lost now we might think we know that intellectually but mm. I, I think very few people actually walk through their daily lives talking to a rock mm -hmm. listening to a crow and right. that's what myth is always trying to do it's always trying to bring us back to that deep sense of embodied belonging mm. in a very beautiful animate world so beautiful yeah that reminds me um i've uh I'm I'm very enamored with this uh, acting teacher named Sanford Meisner. He just takes such a different approach to what you might think is theater and acting and being dramatic, you know. And one of the best things I learned out of taking that course was never judge your characters. <laughs> don't think of your characters as good or bad. You know, don't like think of your characters as the villain but like look deeper into what that character is ultimately seeking to accomplish within themselves you know that actually could have started for some from something so noble and kind-hearted and i don't know there's it could go so many different ways but that whole idea even changes the way we approach stories we're like oh that's the bad person you know what i mean but what's that bad person quote unquote, begging to tell us about ourselves, you know? 
Yeah. And uncovering within themselves as well as they go through life. I have a, a monthly membership program, This Mythic Life, which looks at the mythic imagination and different archetypes and different myths and how they relate to us. And this month we've been dealing with it with um, actually two big things, which I think are very interlinked in these days, the trickster archetype mm. and the shadow. And the mm. shadow, you know, we again, as a, as a culture, we are so focused on the light and mm. actually it's the shadow in ourselves, in the culture, the cultural shadow, which teaches us so much and, you know, the need for the balance um, and how when you look at somebody and say that's a bad person or that's a bad thing to do, you're not seeing the multiple layers of that person and the multiple layers of the archetypes that are unfolding in all of our lives. So, yeah, I agree with you. There is a tendency to be way, way too quick to judge and to slap a label on, on behavior that is actually very, very complex at heart. Mm-hmm. I've actually been thinking a lot. I mean, I'm sure you've been in tune with what's happening in America with um, the uprising of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, which I just think is such a beautiful final breakthrough. I've seen Black history being plagued by a, a white myth of a Christian nation that's been so built around colonialism it started with slavery, but slavery was abolished. So then that kind of turned into a subversive reimagining of chain gangs and then Jim Crow laws. And then all the way up to now where you've got mass incarceration laws written to keep as many black men in prison. Have you as a mythologist seen any mythological touch points in observing these moments? Yeah, I guess yes and no. And I'm not sure whether this is a relevant answer to, to your question, but I suppose I've tended to look at it in archetypal terms. And, and I see it very much as living in trickster times. You know, that archetype of the trickster in many mythology, the trickster is not a complicated archetype because sometimes in some mythologies, it's just a joker. You know, it's just a literally the joker um, and not very different from the joker it, plays a few comic tricks and uh, tricks and shows up you know your own um stupidities and your own arrogance and your own pride and what have you and it's not very much more complex than that but in other cultures it's it's a it's a very complex character whose purpose is to disrupt the status quo and to show up human folly in in a cultural sense as well as in a personal limited sense and to break things in a way that is often very unpleasant and very uncomfortable, but in order that something new may be born. And so, you know, I wrote an article years ago when Donald Trump um, was elected um, about, you know, you, you might not get, and, and the touchline was you might not always get, you, you might not always get the trickster that you want, but you usually get the trickster that you deserve. Um, because the trickster is the one who holds up the mirror to the cultural shadow you know the trickster says you think you're you think you're righteous you think you're morally good you think you're perfect you think you're the face of democracy you think you're a shining beacon to the world well look look at what i've got for you that's trickster to me in the heart of in the heart of the archetype and i think what's interesting is that the trump era and you know the same in the uk as well boris johnson isn't quite trump but you know hey we're getting there cut from the similar cloth yeah, in some ways. Uh, and then the, then you look at the coronavirus. And, you know, in a sense, the coronavirus is trickster as well. Mm. Can a virus be a trickster? Of course it can. Anything Absolutely. can be a virus. And so, again, it's come in. It's said, okay, guys, you know, you think that you're so good. 
here's what you've broken, here's the mirror, I'm going to break you a little bit more now, what are you going to do about it? The point of that disruption, which is very unpleasant, we don't want people to die, we don't want no. to be locked down. We, you know, I'm not celebrating by any means either no. of these two factors, but what happens is it clears a path, it breaks the old order, and then the big question is, because there are no guarantees with Trickster, there are no guarantees at all. Okay, we've broken this, here's the path, what are you going to do with it? And that's mm. what I am finding most fascinating at the moment. I'm not a person who speaks a lot about hope um, because I, have a, I, I don't like the word. Um, mm. It's often tied up with um, you know, foolish hope and just like not looking at the shadow <laughs> for the way it is. Um, and, and so I don't use that word, but I am just sitting here and I don't, I'm neither hopeful nor unhopeful. I think it can go both ways. I think it can go either way. I think it can go all different ways at once, depending on what we're looking at. But it is trickster times. That is the myth to me. That is wow. the archetype which is predominating at the moment. And you guys over there are at the heart of it. We're all just watching you thinking, uh, what earth is going to happen next? <laughs> and it's guilt by association too. Like I like want to, if I ever travel back to Europe in the coming days, I want to wear a t-shirt that says, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame me. <laughs> I know. It's out of control first thought like what about myth is just lighting you up right now with regards to its ability to transform us um there's a story how about i tell you a story instead lovely it's actually a story which i think um i've seen it in various places i think it's a native american story originally but it, but i've seen it in various places i think i first heard it from michael mead who's a very wonderful american mythologist um, and I, I took it and because it was talking about the old woman of the world in a cave and we have old women of the world in caves in our mythology, I thought, well, that's my story too. So I'll, mm. you know, I'll, I'll make it my way. It's a very short one, but it, but it highlights to me the power of mythology to just, to just make us go on because I was asked at a conference I was speaking at maybe three, four years ago, what, what do you do? What, what gets you out of bed when everything looks bleak? You know, what, what, what makes you, how do you go on? That was in a dark time. That was the kind of Trump, Boris Johnson, Brexit kind of area. You know, what, what do you do? And I told him the story and it's a story and I'll tell you my version of it. It's a story about um, an island, which is way, way to the West of this island that I live on right now. And it's an island that you've probably seen in your dreams. It's got beautiful white sandy beaches and the waves crash in other parts of the island against beautiful high rocky cliffs. And it's said that if you stand on those high cliffs at the far west coast of that island, you can see all of the way out to the Blessed Isles mm. and to high Brazil, to the Isle of Women. And they say, though nobody I know has ever been there, they say that in those cliffs, there is a cave. And in that cave lives the old woman of the world. Mm. And if you were to find your way to that cave, and a lot of people have died trying, so it seems, but if you were to find your way to that cave and you were to stand at the entrance of the cave and look into it, you would see the old woman of the world at work. She mm. would be on the right-hand side of that cave and you would find her weaving at a giant loom and she would be weaving what she plans will be the most beautiful tapestry that the world has ever seen she's weaving it from all kinds of different colored threads of all kinds of different materials 
And she's also weaving a fringe which is made of sea urchin quills because the old woman of the world knows that even the most beautiful tapestry in the world has to have its sharp edges. You have to be able to prick your thumb on it, otherwise it's not quite as beautiful as you think. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that cave, on the left-hand side of that cave, is a fire. And over that fire hangs a black cauldron, which is full of liquid. And the liquid mm -hmm. in that cauldron is full of all of the herbs and all of the growing things and all of the seeds of the world. And they're cooking away in that cauldron. And every now and again, the old woman remembers that it's her job to make sure that that stuff doesn't stick to the bottom of the cauldron and burn. So that all of the growing things and all of the seeds and all of the herbs, all of the things in the world that are beautiful and alive must be kept bubbling away in that soup. So she leaves the most beautiful tapestry that the world has ever seen. She hopes and she goes and she stirs the cauldron. While she's away stirring that cauldron, you might see that there's a little fluttering up in the right hand top right-hand corner of that cave. And on a stone shelf right up there, all of a sudden peers out Trickster Crow. Now, the old woman of the world can't remember a time when she and Trickster Crow didn't live together. They've always been They've always been together since the beginning of the world. While the old woman of the world is away stirring the soup, Trickster Crow pops down, stands in front of the tapestry. Oh, he's a crow. He knows exactly what has to be done. He sees those beautiful shining threads. He wants them for himself. So what does Trickster Crow do? Peck, 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 peck. This one, that one, that one. Beautiful. And by the time that the old woman of the world comes away from the soup, back to the tapestry, all of her beautiful work is lying in a heap of tangled threads on the floor. What does the old woman of the world do? Does she weep? Does she wail? Does she stomp out of the cave? Does she kill Trickster Crow, say she's never going to weave again? She does not, because the old woman of the world is a weaver. She is the old woman of the world. So she looks at that pile of threads, and before she takes her first deep sighing breath, she has noticed a beautiful turquoise thread in the corner there. She remembers that thread. She's sure she's seen it before. She picks it up, she measures it, and before you know, she's put it on the loom, and the old woman of the world is weaving what she hopes will be the most beautiful tapestry that the world has ever seen. And the wow. point of this story is that the old woman of the world knows what Trickster Crow knows, which is that if she succeeded in creating the most beautiful tapestry that the world would ever see, the world would end. And so Trickster Crow Whoa. keeps on picking and the old woman keeps on weaving so that the world is always in the process of becoming. And whenever Whoa. I get low, and I do when I read the morning newspapers, yeah. I think of that story and I think that there will always be another tapestry. Hmm. It may not have me in it. It may not have the world that I recognize in it, but it will always have another tapestry. And much as we might think he's the villain, Trickster Crow sometimes is the great disruptor that keeps it all churning. So. Wow. That is so beautiful, Sharon. That, what a great, powerful story. Wow. Trickster Crow. <laughs> That's the stuff that lights me up. And, and so that's why talking to you, Sharon, is just like, it, it really invigorates me and, and on so many levels. And so I'm really thankful for your work. I'm really, really thankful for what you do. Well, thanks. I think that, you know, to me, the, the thing that I, that I hold very dear as a, a kind of philosophy, I suppose, if that doesn't sound too grandiose, is the idea that, that, that we, we, at some level, we have to make our own stories. You know, Carl Jung said that humans are myth makers. 
that we're always, we should always be looking at the stories that we're telling about ourselves and about our place in the world. And yet we've, we, we've been discouraged from doing that because we've been told for, for decades, if not centuries, that the stories are already laid down for us. There's only one way to be. And I think we're seeing more and more examples in the world now of people challenging the narrative, of people challenging that cultural mythology. And it's down to us. Jung said, when the cultural mythology starts to break down, when it doesn't serve people anymore, when it, when it becomes, um, when, it, when, when it fades away, the myth-making power resides in individuals. So it resides wow. to me, it resides in me as a writer to reimagine those fairy tales in a different way, to reimagine the Snow Queen. It resides in the people who write the scripts for the television programs and the movies. It resides in anyone who does anything um, in their lives, no matter how big or how small, that challenges that, that cultural mythology and, and points the way to a new story. So yeah, to me, that's pretty much what, it, what it's about. That's what it's about. Thank you so much for oh yeah to talk to you. It's been a real a real pleasure. You come at it from a quite different angle from what I'm used to, so that's very oh, different. Oh good, I love to hear that. No, thanks, Sharon. I'm I, I'm just so appreciative of your time, and yeah, it means so much to me. And I know my listeners are going to be so encouraged just to to hear all you have to offer. So thanks, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, really appreciate. All right, we'll be okay. in touch. Yeah. Peace to you. Okay. All right, bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more where that came from, check out Sharon's two most recent books, If Women Rose Rooted and Foxfire Wolfskin, and other stories of shape-shifting women. For more information on Sharon's books, courses, and other resources, visit her website at SharonBlackie.net. B-L-A-C-K-I-E. If you like what you hear, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and leave a review. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.